the of a of a list of films I've watched is it is so long. It's so long, but I've cut it down to the key ones like Cleopatra right, okay. Out and Friendversary and Legionnaire. So we've got all the all the key ones anyway. <laughs> so, see, so yeah, this is um this is Kino Kingdom thirty four, and today's a bit of a special one because we've actually we're actually covering like an actual brand new film. Um. I will say, Rupert, though, before I forget, for the fourth month on the trot, have you managed to do your Arkin's Da? <laughs> no, not at all. Come on! <laughs> How long does it take to get from Rene Zellweger to Mark Dacascus? Three months Surprisingly ago. long, I guess. <laughs> yeah. You're just um, con- constantly scrolling through the Bridget Jones films of Mark Dacascus, just so you can do it in one. I'm so disorganised. I'm looking at my notes, and I'm thinking, I, I, this list of films I have, have I covered these already I, mean, I swear i've covered gone through most of these already but maybe not they must be on this they must be on this kk34 document for some reason so otherwise we we'll just have to go through them again i mean you, there's only you can't go through talking about you've got mail enough times in my opinion oh joe versus the volcano i've uh... <laughs> I've got a few here that I've got a few two minutes. Um, and, and like, yeah, like you just mentioned, I think I've got about 12 to 15 films that over the last two episodes we haven't fit in. And I, it's been like a month. So I may rewatch them. I may not. I've, I've got all the ones I want to talk about anyway. Um, so, yeah, the, the one main film I want to talk about, and I'll go, I'll go into it first in a second after I obviously get the sponsorship out of the way, is um, Mortal Kombat, which I watched last night. Um, right. And Rupert, Rupert has is going to watch it, so it'll be yeah. nice. It'll be nice actually to, to do it split over over two weeks. Yeah, yeah. And I will say absolutely upfront to everyone listening that um, I am going it, to. It's sort of spoilery, but I, I want to specifically talk about certain parts. But it's a Mortal Kombat film, so it's not like I'm giving away a plot twist. It's just it's mm. just people people fighting with lots of CG. Um, so obviously, Rupert, I'll get the sponsorship through. And this week we are sponsored by Herbert Rubbergan's online ninja school. Hi, I'm Herbert Rubbergan, and although I might not sound like your typical ninja, I can assure you I'm one of the most deadly men you've ever heard in a promotional advertisement on this podcast. Join me at the Rubbergan online ninja school where I can teach you how to become a master assassin. You'll disappear into the shadowy night, be able to silently enter any building without detection, and, should you finish the course with a high enough grade, you'll get your own ninja sword which is so sharp that it's actually quite wobbly. To give you a taste of what to expect, here are the Rubbergun Online Ninja School key rules for being an elite ninja. 1. Take your keys out of your fucking pocket. 2. Pay all your Rubbergun Ninja School fees on time. Do you have what it takes? Sign up now to the Rubbergun Online Ninja School. The first lesson is an online block viewing of Bruce Lee's entire back catalogue. The second lesson, forget everything you've just seen because he is nothing compared to me. Steven Seagal getting choked out by a stuntman and soiling his trousers. Don't make me laugh. (laughs) Once, I broke into my own mind and stole my memories without me knowing. And I didn't shit myself. The rubber gun online ninja school. No messing around. No substitutes. No keys in your fucking pocket. That That actually sounds really, like, handy. It's fantastic, isn't it? Really? I've always wanted to be an elite martial artist, but um, I've never, I've never sort of bothered. Yeah, but, but, I, but, <laughs> but I, 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 I do like the thought that you can. I, I didn't realize you could just become a ninja over like a Zoom meeting. That sounds quite interesting. Yeah, I, I mean, the rules they weren't extensive, were they? I mean, it mostly uh, kind of revolves around removing your keys from your pocket, essentially, didn't it? It's yeah. a start. 
definitely. And paying the fees. In all fairness, <laughs> how many yes. films have you watched, like ninja films from the 70s and 80s, where they had like their keys on a chain dangling? Because that would, I mean, yeah. that could probably be used as a weapon against you in combat. But also, if you're sneaking along a ledge in a castle or something, mm. people are going to say, oh, there's someone outside. I can hear someone's keys jingling outside on the ledge. Especially well, if you've got like a couple yeah. of cars, a shed, there's a lot of jingling going on there. Um, well, I've never seen a film in which that's happened. Mm. So that proves that a key part of being a ninja is not keeping your keys on you. So he must be right. So yeah, that makes so, sense. I'm, just as you were saying that, I'm just thinking back over Mortal Kombat. If if Shang Tsung or Raiden says that to any of their armies, and I don't think they do. But then I don't know well, what in, in the, the nether realm. The big climactic yeah. speech before the final battle. Yeah, you see, you, see, you, see, you see Goro roll his eyes and like get his keys out of his pocket and pop them on a table before he before he gets into the fighting pit. Um, so yeah, so if it's cool with you, Rupert, I'll, I'll go straight into Mortal Kombat, if that's fine. Yes, please. It's the, <laughs> it's the, it's the headline movie. <laughs> so this... I was thinking about this, right? It, the, the Mortal Kombat, to me, uh, obviously based on the games by midway from the early 90s, um, I was just thinking about how many times that, because in my head it was, oh yeah, of course, they did that. They've done the games, obviously, and they've rebooted the games a couple of times. They've done the two movies in the 90s, and then I think there was a TV show, but then you think, no, there was an online series of short films leading up to what was going to going to be a film directed by the guy who did the shorts and that fell through and so there's and there's cartoons as well spin-offs so it's it's um, when i was looking into this I thought, this is actually like a quite a big franchise it's not just a load of silly mm. films from the 90s like i remember um so this this incarnation of mortal Kombat follows someone called cole young played by lewis tan whose father is philip tan and i mention that because when i uh, saw a picture of philip tan online he has got an illustrious career as a stuntman, and yet my mind snapped to, oh, I know you, you're the guy who got choked by a chair in Tango and Cash in the opening sequence by Kurt Russell and his hair. Um, <laughs> so, so Lewis Tan plays Cole Young, uh, who is an MMA fighter, a bit down in his luck, sort of fighting for a couple of hundred dollars in a, in a, in a gym. And he has got this birthmark shaped like, effectively, the Mortal Kombat logo like a dragon. And he gets attacked by Sub-Zero and through that gets picked up by Raiden and realizes he's actually part of the, the Scorpion's bloodline and is getting dragged into this Mortal Kombat tournament of which... Um, Scorpions never... as in Winds of Change. <laughs> yeah, that's what, whenever Scorpion appears in the film, that song kicks in believe me it's, okay. it's just like oh i get it i see what they've done actually you saying mm. that i can't remember any of the music from the film which i assume is a good thing i always assume that's good if i can't remember the music mm. and it, oh, it just <laughs> means it's deeply forgettable okay. yeah so yeah we see uh, uh hundreds of years ago in, in the uh, 16th century um a scorpion when he was known as hanzo hasashi played by hiroyuki sanada who has been in a lot of cool films um his family get killed by Sub-Zero, who is known as Bihan, and he gets killed by him as well. And then it flashes forward to his sort of um, the, the modern times where it's played by uh, Louis Tan as Cole Young as this MMA fighter. He's part of this bloodline, doesn't realize it, gets dragged into this tournament. And we find out that the Netherrealm has 
won nine of the ten tournaments. This is the tenth tournament. And if they win this tenth tournament, the trot, they get to invade Earth and take over Earth. So the stakes are pretty high. The problem is with this that Cole Young is uh, Lewis Tan's character is is fine in the film, but the whole purpose to have him as the person that we see the story through doesn't really need to happen because everything is explained to groups of people anyway. Like you've got, um, you know, like on the sort of side of Earth, you've mm-hmm. got Sonya Blade, Kano, um, Raiden, Jax, Liu Kang, and Kung Lao. So. Uh, the plot is so sparse anyway that it can be described in one line. So we don't need this cipher character to understand this complicated plot through. So he could very easily be removed. Um, the, the the film then goes on. So um, the fight scenes are the, the real draw here, right? And, they, and they're really good when there are, if they're between key characters. So, at the start, you have Sub Zero fighting Scorpion, and it obviously happens at the end. And in the, in the middle, there's a couple of sort of skirmishes which are a bit boring. But when there mm-hmm. are multiple fights going on at once, it's it's well edited, so you can those parts are well edited, so you can understand what's going on when there's multiple fights happening. Um, the editing is a huge problem. Otherwise, it's like mm-hmm. the film the film was five or ten minutes too long, and instead of cutting out scenes they cut out scene transitions. So, for, for example, there's a scene where they're on a plane and they're skydiving to get to this Raiden's temple and wherever it is in some desert. And they they sort of jump and then it just cuts and they're just walking in the desert. And you think, well, actually, that would have been a nice sequence to see. You know, it would have been yes. like a pretty skydiving sequence. And um, there's scenes later on when Cole Young sort of doesn't feel like he's up for it and then leaves the tournament and goes back. But he goes to see his family, and he just sort of makes a decision like, no, actually, I'm going to do it. And then it cuts, and he's just back there. <laughs> you think, mm. but it's like no one, because everyone is there for this one reason, to fight this tournament. No one has any, um, there's no time. Everyone has the same one-dimensional character arc. They, you, you, their background is like, you know, Kano's a gun runner, um, and Sonya and Jax have heard about this tournament and want to get involved in their ex-military. But there's no, their histories and pasts never come into it. So they're all effectively the same character just with like slightly different fighting styles um the kano is the comedy character in this he's a play by played sorry by an australian called josh lawson who i don't think i've seen in anything else and he he has a real blunderbuss approach to every line is a gag or a put down because he's obviously a bad guy sort of thing but because the editing is so like overly sharp it doesn't help because it sometimes you'll say a one-liner and it and the cut will affect the rhythm of it also if you can imagine someone who's just a gag character all the time saying these gags these sort of comebacks it, it's mm. very tiresome it's not it's not well used it's just boom boom everything you say, and you think okay this is getting irritating now especially because the rest of the film isn't awesome because it doesn't it's not balanced by you know overwhelmingly tasty fight sequences there's a lot of nods to the game in the film from characters that are hinted at through, you know, when they're looking through tomes or looking at things, you, you can see people like Nightwolf and other uh, Kentaro, other characters. But the way that the film references its gaming roots is really heavy handed. Um, for instance, the 
character Scorpion speaks in Japanese throughout the entire film, and and at the end of the film, when he comes up with the climactic battle with Sub Zero, um, when he sort of comes back from hell, he just shouts "Get over here" in English in the tone of voice from the games. When it would have been much more effective if he appeared, mm-hmm. Sub Zero looked at him and was like, "Wow, you're back after 500 years, and you look awesome." And then he just said, "Get over here" in Japanese quietly, and then yanked him over and kicked the fight off. Everything is just a huge sort of yeah. sledgehammer approach. Right. Um, so it, I'm sounding like I'm banging on it. The CG is pretty good. The, there's a lot of blood, but it's very okay. sort of CG-ish blood. There's a lot of okay. fatalities and stuff. So it's quite sort of juicy in that respect. But because the blood is so obviously fake in CG, it's not like gory or nasty. It just seems quite sort of schlocky and funny. Yeah, that seems like a reasonable balance. To be yeah, yeah, absolutely. Because, I mean, the games, they are schlocky. Uh, but the fatalities, I mean, it was never meant to be really grounded in reality or anything. And they're so over the top, it was meant to have a comical element, definitely, wasn't it? I, I think Despite that's... Despite the uh, enormous controversy of the time, which seems ridiculous now. Oh, God, yeah. I, I think that's um, a problem with it, is is the balance. Because when you've got... Um, like, the, the events that kick off the film where Scorpion's family are murdered in cold blood, and then he is killed... And then he sort of comes back later on. Um, it's quite serious. And you've got Kano cracking jokes throughout. And you've got, like, if you think back to, like, Christopher Lambert or even James Remar's Raiden, right, from the 90s, not to compare the films to it, but they were kind of in on it a bit. They were just, like, cracking jokes and laughing and things. Oh, yeah. in, the, in this, you've got, like, very serious scenes and then it's, like, really jokey scenes. And it's, like, it, it kind of feels like it's been edited by a load of different people. Um, there is... What was I going to say? Yeah, there, there are some silly, really silly moments. Like there's a bit where um, Bihan, Sub-Zero, um, you know, is in the nether realm. It's it's present day. So he's obviously an immortal ninja that's lived for over half, you know, half a millennia. And he goes up to Shang Tsung and they say, right, I want you to go. And because the whole plot is that they want um, nether realm and Shang Tsung are just going to kill all of the Earth fighters before the tournament even starts, which is cheating as far as I'm concerned. Um, and... He says to, to Sub Zero, Bihan, I want you to go and uh, go and like kill Cole Young, and then Bihan says, "I am Bihan no more. My name is Sub Zero." And I thought, well, he would know that. I mean, you've worked for him for four hundred years, and you obviously <laughs> have picked used it up that name for centuries. Yeah, so you, I expected Shang Tsung to say, "Oh, sorry, I keep forgetting, mate." Um, <laughs> but yeah, that was like you, you, you'd know his name by now. Um, what was I going to say? Yeah, it's so it's fun. It it is a fun film when it wants to be, but it's there's the 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 sort of rhythm of the film is they have this fight, this tournament that never actually happens. Every all the fighting is done sort of outside of the tournament, and you have they meet up with the Nether Realm, um, the Nether Realm fighters. They get beaten quite badly. Then they they mm. basically go to somewhere in between worlds, and there's no like they don't do any training. They just go somewhere in between worlds in this sort of white room, and Raiden says, "Oh come on, guys, buck up your ideas a bit." And then Liu Kang says, "Yeah, come on, we've got this." And then <coughs> it just does this three minute montage, and they just like teleport down to Netherworld and just beat their you know their other partner, um, just really quickly and really boringly. There's no, there's no like builder. Mm-hmm. So the whole thing where they say, right, let's get the fight in done, it's over in like three minutes, and then you're at, you're at the end fight. Um, mm-hmm. 
I also realized when I was watching this that there's a, a thing in the film as well called Arcana, which is almost like when you're these people were marked for the tournament when they unlock their powers. Like, for example, Cole Young's power is this he sort of, um, when he unlocks it, it's this sort of armor that absorbs blows that he can then charge into turning into into weapons or strength. Uh, obviously, you've got um, Jax with the, the, when he gets it, his fake arms. Um, sort of uh, mutate into these hyper strong arms sonya gets this weird like laser power um kano gets his eye but if if they didn't have those powers and i made a list of this if they didn't ha- if they didn't have time to unlock those powers um or if Liu Kang didn't go through the effort of like telling them about it right you you would have two ex-military soldiers one topless and one in a vest a slightly irritating australian arms dealer a purposefully substandard MMA fighter and two monks up against a giant four-armed monster, a flying banshee, a fully armored ninja who can generate and control ice and has lived for centuries, a man in full armor with hook swords who can teleport, a cannibal that can teleport, a giant acid-spitting invisible armored lizard, a seven-foot man with a massive hammer, and an immortal sorcerer who can actually suck your soul out of your body. And you think it would be really up against it, wouldn't it? Would be, yeah, you, it would be tricky. So, yeah, so it's it's fine. Like, I don't think it's going to please. Like, fans will like it, but it, it's it was when I was watching it and I was sort of enjoying the fight sequences. Uh, the fight sequences I did enjoy, the ones that weren't sort of rushed in the middle because there's just too many people involved, quite frankly. Mm. Um, and I was enjoying it. it whenever they did, like, there's a bit, for example, where Cole Young is fighting Goro in a, in his garden, obviously, and he is. Goro is hammering on his armor and it's obviously charging up and his daughter shouts out daddy do your uppercut and he and he sort of goes oh yeah and then lamps Goro and I thought that if I was a, if I was any in any sort of fight and I was like a trained fighter and I was getting beaten up and my son shouted out dad hit him he'd be like oh yeah <laughs> um it just seemed really silly there's a lot of and um there's a bit where Kang Lao kills someone and then he actually says flawless victory to himself and it's like ah, oh, I just think these could have been done in a slightly less heavy-handed way and but the last thing I'll say is uh, there's two things I want to say actually one is I'm going to read out what uh, the character that plays the the actor that plays Raiden says on IMDB in an interview um, it's a little quote that I, I took a picture of this morning because it tickled me so much in preparing for the film, Lord Raiden actor Tadanobu Asano felt it was important to not just read his own lines, but also the dialogue of others speaking about Raiden in order to truly understand the character. So he, he basically just read the script. That's what he's saying. In preparation to be in this film, I'm being paid tens of thousands of dollars for, I read it. Oh, okay. Um, and and uh, the other thing is, of course, like we were talking about just before the podcast started recording, it's clearly wants to be a franchise, right? A, fr- a movie mm-hmm. franchise. So the ending teases Johnny Cage because at the end, you know, the film, and then Raiden says, oh, we need to get the fighters ready for the next tournament. Mm-hmm. Well, the, when the tournament actually starts, because it hasn't even kicked off in this film. Mm-hmm. And they say, we need to go to Hollywood. And it, it sort of pans to a poster of Johnny Cage. You, you don't see who the actor is because they obviously haven't cast him yet. You just see the, the Johnny Cage in like a belt buckle. And... If you think about it, right, so that is the big suck-in for us as viewers to, like, really get ramped up about the next film. But Johnny Cage is a cocky, hyper-confident, mouthy tosser, right? 
But that is Kano's character in this film. So you're basically saying right. you're just going to replace one character with an extremely similar one with a slightly different accent. And that's meant to get me excited for a sequel. <laughs> yeah, that could be an issue unless they do some sort of like buddy thing, I suppose. But, uh, unless it's like some sort of spin-off thing. But the problem is that the, the film, like you said, there's, there's no time and, and there's no interest in character development or arc. So it's all about the fight sequences, which really yeah. feel rushed. So... It, I, I did enjoy it. I, I know I'm hammering on it a bit, but, but then I think I was very aware of the same thing when we talked about Grimsby, of expectations going into it. Uh-huh. And I would say it's an okay film if you like the franchise, but people who have no interest in the games will just watch it and think, oh, this is, you know, this is just like, I don't know, the quest with Jean-Claude Van Damme. It's just people fighting in a tournament and flying about. It's brilliant then. Absolutely brilliant film of the year. <laughs> is that the one with Roger Moore? Yes, yes, it is. And John Claude Van Damme directed it as well. Yeah. Whew, okay, well, I'm looking forward to this sort of. <laughs> yeah. Even yeah. though you just gave a really middling review. but <laughs> yeah. I was wondering, actually, if I preferred the, the 95 one or not. Um, and I haven't seen it for so long. But like this wasn't... I just wish that they'd focused on a handful of characters. And yeah. Rather you know, they got everything almost, into the dishwasher. Almost like a Jason the Argonauts thing where there's like a goal and then they fight different ones along the way, as opposed to mm. just a massive bowl of characters and rushing to find time for them all. Mm. Okay, well, I obviously will be watching it, hopefully, um, in the near future. Um, okay, uh, on your recommendation, I watched Love and Monsters. Oh, nice, okay. Yeah. And... I, it opens with this is on Netflix and it opens with a song by the the um, so I knew that I was going to like it from that moment forward because oh, okay. that was so did you, good did you uh, just turn it off and think that's it pretty much that's it it's done <laughs> um, yeah uh, I, I did enjoy this film I, I, I liked its simplicity because as we covered last week it's post-apocalyptic uh, Creatures have basically become mutated. So you get giant insects and all sorts. Um, and humans have all been all but been wiped out. So they're living in bunkers. So this young man, played by Dylan O'Brien, is kind of he's basically a kind of weedy guy, um, a cook um, in this bunker. And he's just really lovesick. And so he decides, right, screw this. I'm just going to go and travel across this dangerous world to go see my girlfriend again. And, um, yeah, I thought there's there's hints of, actually, it reminded me of How to Train Your Dragon, because it's a similar kind of lovesick, weedy guy in the tribe uh, who no one really believes in. He keeps a journal of the monsters, uh, and you know he's going to find his courage eventually. Um, yeah, and I like Dylan O'Brien. I think he's he's good act. He's got charisma. And there's a bit of Martin Freeman, I thought, in some of his like deadpan responses to like he'd just be told that he's got absolutely no hope or whatever and it, it would just be like a kind of like a slight glance sideways um which i've enjoyed a lot michael rooker obviously who i literally thought was woody harrelson when he first turned up um <laughs> but uh, he's woody harrelson would do this kind of role it's like the yeah. older kind of more experienced guy but i think what rooker brings to it is a bit more maturity perhaps because something about woody harrelson's always a bit childlike but i but rook is really good um yeah i um i enjoyed it like the 
special effects and that the combination of like practical effects and CGI was cool. Um, and yeah, there was, I'm not sure it quite kept its quality up to the final moments. And the final message is kind of laudable in a slightly bland and very general way. But it seems to be saying essentially like determination and courage uh, and this will to keep fighting. That's what's going to save the human race and that. But I was thinking, well, determination and courage are one thing. But frankly, Dylan, your survival was based on so luck. much luck yeah. than, more than anything else. You're so fortunate in every situation you're in, getting tossed through the air by these creatures <laughs> and just happening to shoot them in the right spot or get saved in a kind of deus ex machina kind of way. And, um, yeah, so... I'm not sure I, that completely rings true. It's very easy to say, oh, have courage that, and determination when you've just lucked your way through a seven-day journey. But yeah, that, that was exactly my point when, when I reviewed it last week. It, because what I thought was, he, yeah, he's lucked through these situations and he's saying the message is, you know, got to see more and, you know, don't, don't hide, go, go above ground sort of thing. But everyone is dead aren't they above ground like <laughs> people have been above ground and everyone has died because of it and that is why you are underground so it, it's like at the end when they're all just like wandering around laughing at the sunshine you think you will be dead by the time the credits have finished rolling <laughs> yeah. um yeah but it is an enjoyable yeah film, romp definitely it's very uh, and uh, it's got a nice tone light tone to it uh which is a tricky thing when it comes to post-apocalyptic settings, because it's pretty grim subject matter, especially when it it does it doesn't shy away from you know what happened, like you know what happened to his parents, what happened to pretty much everybody, and yet it still managed to maintain his parents. That, that was harsh when you see. Yeah, what they they didn't last. You know, I, spoiler alert: they didn't make it. They're not st- they're not walking away from that one. <laughs> Um, yeah, so that was enjoyable. Definitely watch Love and Monsters uh, on Netflix. Can I squeeze in a two-minute Sure. Um, I watched Who is Cletus Tout, a 2001 comedy film with Richard Dreyfuss, Portia de Rossi, Tim Allen. Uh, yeah, sorry, I've said I'm Christian Slater. Um, it was funny, actually, because I paused this film. This film, I've never heard of it. I paused this film, and, of course, on, on Prime, where it was, it just comes up with a title in the corner. And he walked in and said, what are you watching? Who is Cletty 2? And I said, no, it's not some French art drama. It's Cletus Tout. Um, so, yeah, that tickled me. Was that the funniest moment of the film for me? It's hard to say. Uh, it's not. It was. Um, so the, the film is uh, it's, it's told in a, a sort of fl- it starts off and Christian Slater is in a hotel room and he opens the door and uh, Tim Allen puts a gun to his head and then he's like it freeze frames Christian Slater does his huh that's me uh, Finch oh, let me tell you my story and then it does, okay. does a flashback so it, it it the whole film then is told in a flashback with the the framing device of Tim Allen in this hotel room with Christian Slater tied to a chair holding a gun to his head um asking him you know telling the story and the story is basically that Richard Dreyfus has been in prison for 20 years for a diamond theft that he did and no one knows where the diamonds are he is about to tell um, Christian Slater's character Finch, where the diamonds are, and he gets killed. So Christian Slater teams up with his daughter Tess, played by Portia de Rossi, and they try to find out the diamonds as they fall in love together. Um, 
the, the title, who is Cletus Tout, is it's a it's a pseudonym that Christian Slater takes on when he gets out of prison with a fake passport. Um, that, and Cletus Tout happens to be someone that I think that the mafia are after for having dodgy footage of someone. So it's all very lightly done. Um, and so they're after him. He doesn't know why they thought Cletus Tout was dead and it's all, you know, mix-ups and stuff. Um, mm. Tim Allen's character in this, and I'll let you drink this in. Tim Allen's character is a, a supposedly cold-blooded hitman obsessed with movies. So every time it cuts back to the present day, you know, the present time, and Christian Slater explains a scene of what's happened, yeah. then you'll have Tim Allen saying, oh, just like in Casablanca in 1940, blah, 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 blah. And, and you think, right, that's going to get tiresome fast. And it does. <laughs> okay. And, and it's one of those films where it's it's trying to do that sort of you know it's a very serious situation but it's all very wacky and colourful um, like Rapala's in it um, um, doing her thing and it's it's got this sort of wacky vibe but you've got mm-hmm. it's surrounded by all these hitmen and, and murderers and you don't believe anyone if you know what I mean it's not funny enough to be a comedy it's it, and and it's not it's not serious enough to take seriously it's it's like a like a sort of a rollicking roller coaster but it's also so generic that it's an interesting um two things one is that there was a sequence when christian slater is arguing with portia de rossi and he's trying to get her back on side so they can find the diamonds together and he's shouting at her from the floor on the fire escape outside her apartment. And he says, right, I'm coming up. And he starts quite early on in the film. And he climbs up a sort of dumpster. And as he's climbing the ladder, he just completely slips and falls off and hurts himself. And then when he gets up and climbs to the top and he starts talking, he slips again and like falls off the concrete onto the floor. And I thought that was brilliant because I thought, oh, good, physical comedy. But it's just never... It's never revisited in the film. I thought if he was like a clumsy character that kept on having these pratfalls, it would have been like an extra 10% better. Um, and it would have suited the wacky vibe. Um, mm. And uh, I forgot the other thing now. Uh, but yeah, it's it's just it's just average. It's, it's very much a film that I would have like watched on VHS in work in a video store in the background and it would have finished and then about two years later, I would have seen the cover and thought, have I seen that? It's basically yeah. in the line of fire. <laughs> <laughs> um, so, yeah, Billy Connolly's in it as well, which is good, but it's... Um, so I get yeah, the sense there's a reason why you've never heard of it. Or, in fact, yeah. anyone's ever heard of it. Well, right. I, th- I, look, I think it was going to be released in September um, 2001, and obviously because of the, the World Trade Center issue, uh, it, it was held off cinemas, and I think it was just sort of quietly released. It's nothing to do with you know with the World Trade Center, but it was quietly released later and just completely sunk, I think. And it's not a bad film. Like, at the time, it would have been fun, but now it's just, it's just a late 90s, early 2000s silly Billy film. <laughs> Is that what is that the subgenre we're putting them in? Silly that, Billy films. Yeah, you know those sort of like wacky, crimey, you know, light-hearted action mm, sort of post-Tarantino type things, right? Mm. Okay. So it's okay. It's worth a watch if you just. It's perfect for you with your son chucking something in the background that you can miss 10, 15 minutes of and not care. Fine. Yeah. Good. Like those sorts of movies. Um, all right. Well, I'll I'll just go straight into Karate Kid three then. This is <clears throat> this is one of my Rakuten choices because, as you know, I get two free <laughs> Rakuten um, rentals each month. But 
it's really severely limited and what I can actually choose. So obviously I had to finish off the Karate Kid trilogy with a notoriously rubbish third part made in 1989. Um, directed yet again by John G. Avildsen, who was famous for doing the Rocky, directing the original Rocky film and, lest we forget, Rocky V. Um, huh. I, I was reading about John G. Albertson, actually, because it's more interesting than Karate Kid 3. So he, his final film was a film called Inferno in 1999, and this was a Jean-Claude Van Damme film I have not seen. So I'm keen to watch this now, because it's got Jean-Claude Van Damme, Danny Trejo, and Pat Morita in it, so I'm keen on this. Um, and it's an action comedy as well. So you know it's not going to be funny. Uh, <laughs> as soon as you see the word action comedy, you think, right, it won't be funny then, right? Um, so, <laughs> um, another interesting thing, not directly late, related to Craig 3, is that Ralph Macchio is 59 now, which I didn't know. He looks literally about 40 in Cobra Kai. It's ridiculous. Um, but anyway. He's still boyish, is he? I haven't seen Cobra Kai. Yeah, oh, yeah. Like, yeah, it's, it's weird. Um, but 59, that's insane. But yes, uh, so Karate Kid 3, uh, Daniel-san and Miyagi, they set up a bonsai shop. Um, and obviously Daniel starts um, dating the chick across the street because he has to have a different girl in every film. Um, meanwhile, a mean dude who is a friend of the original um kind of karate master, original evil karate master, um, has arranged for a hot young buck to kick Daniel's ass at the upcoming tournament. But Daniel doesn't want to enter the tournament. He just wants to stick to bonsais and that. So this guy keeps coming back and threatening Daniel, saying, oh, you've got to join the tournament. I want to kick your ass, et cetera, et cetera. So a big part of the first two acts is just a bunch of guys basically trying to get Daniel to sign an application form. And so that's that. And then there's this whole other subplot about Daniel and the chick going to pick a bonsai tree from the side of a cliff, which is really boring. Um, so there's that. Um, the, there's a bit of intrigue insofar as Daniel leaves Miyagi, uh, Miyagi as a trainer because, he, because Miyagi doesn't approve. Daniel gets this new teacher, but the new teacher is... Uh, a bit of an evil bastard who wants, you know, one of these no mercy type um, guys. Um, it, it all feels like there was a, it is a situation where they were clearly contracted for a third movie but didn't have a third script. So they just seem to rustle it up in a weekend. I'm not mm. sure why Daniel can't just explain to Miyagi that if he doesn't fight in the tournament, then he will get hurt and his girlfriend will get hurt. He could just say to Miyagi, look, I'm being threatened by people. I'm just going to go in for this tournament. Okay, I might get, I, you know, may get a beating, but that's fine. I'll just do it just to get them off my back. Um, but he doesn't seem to want to say that. I don't know why. Uh, also, <clears throat> you haven't just said anything about fighting yet. <laughs> well, most of the fighting in the film, as I say, is these goons basically coming along and scrapping with Daniel, trying to get him to fill in this application form. But because Daniel is so reluctant to fight, they're quite boring. He's just him getting beaten up, really, until a final fight. Um, it's not really very clear why Daniel, who is meant to be so streetwise, remember, because he comes from you know New Jersey, he's a, like a real streetwise kid, 
why he starts with this new teacher and stays with this new teacher, even though the new teacher is clear, clearly wants him to like break bones. He's clearly like immoral and unethical, but I don't know. It's just inconsistent writing, really. So it's really formulaic. It's just the same formula as the first film, really. I mean, at least the second movie didn't really switch the formula up too much, but at least it did relocate the action to Japan, which made it a bit more interesting. But this is just really weakly plotted and poorly acted. Poorly acted because it doesn't seem like anyone wants to be there. Um, And I'm pretty sure that the Cobra Kai TV series just completely ignores this film altogether. Um, mm. Apart from anything, it's quite hard to keep track of all his different girlfriends. But there you go. That is, um, I, I I think I've seen the original Karate Kid, but I've never seen any of the sequels. Hillary Swank. The second one's one. okay. Sorry. Was Hillary Swank in one called The New Karate Kid in '94 or something? Uh, yeah, I think so. I think mm. it was called. Was it called? I've seen it. Yeah. The ne- next Karate Kid. I haven't seen any. Next, of them. Yeah, it might be it. Yeah, and then of course they did the kind of reboot with Will Smith's son in 2010, which was fine. Um, but yeah, it, like of the originals, well, the first one's obviously decent. Second one's okay. I like the fact that it's just just set in Japan, um, which just makes it a little bit more interesting. Um, but this third one, it just seems it seems like a completion of a contract for everyone involved. The very contract that he is being made to sign in the film, per se. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Come like on, sign on for the third film. <laughs> Oh my god, I never even thought about it like that. Yeah, it's literally just like an allegory for him being forced to sign on for yet another karate kid film. <laughs> being bullied by producers. Um uh oh you almost well I'll tell you I I was gonna do it a two minute there, but you because you've mentioned producers, I can do my, my two in one special if that's okay. Um really quickly, because I've got a feeling you may have actually covered um let me just open up the um yeah, so I watched Robert Altman's The the Player, um, which I don't think I've seen before. If I have, it's a very long time ago. Mm-hmm. And it's I'm not going to go into too, too much depth because I'm sure you've covered this before. But, um, yeah, it's just uh, I, I really liked it. I just wanted to say that. <laughs> that I, I've never seen it before, and I was quite surprised that I hadn't. And I, I really liked how it was filmed, the constant zooms into into the sort of background as another that scene then takes over i really like yes. that it gave a really nice flow and uh, obviously all the the 90s gold peter gallagher and brian james brian james brian running james, a production yes. i was so happy and even I'm, steve james from american ninja turns up at the end i was so pleased with that really? yeah I, I, it's been a long time i haven't covered it on this ship it's been a long time since i saw the player but i remember it being i think i watched it in my film degree and I remember it being the, possibly the only film where I found Tim Robbins bearable. So that's quite that's the power of Robert Altman, I guess. Have you seen Nothing to Lose with him? And you, you've seen that, have you? Oh, there you are. There's another one. That's this one where he dances to um, Scatman John while his feet are on fire and outside a petrol station. So yeah, watch Nothing to Lose with him. And who's the other guy in? Uh, yeah, what's his name in um, Bad Boys? Will Smith and Martin. Lawrence. That's it. Martin Lawrence is it's like a buddy comedy. It's an action comedy, Rupert. You'll be all over it. Um, so that's your homework to watch. Nothing to lose. Um, 
Yeah, and, and also, I realised just another thing when I was watching this, the character of David Kahane is played by Vincent D'Onofrio and I realised how chameleonic Vincent D'Onofrio can be in his roles like from, even with his voice every time I see him in a film, even if it's sort of like a few years apart, he seems completely different, yeah, it's really he's, bizarre He's a great actor, yeah uh, I, I, Like, I think of this different roles he's done in, you know, from well, obviously Full Metal Jacket and you compare that to like the cell or something like that it's so different and strange days i remember him in that I don't and know in the, he played kingpin in the daredevil show and he was different again um it did also put paid to the question i've always had about jeremy piven's hair because this is 1992 and his hair is thin is bald at the back and that man's hair is not his own anymore uh i i always thought his hair looked a bit odd and yet seeing him in this and then thinking about seeing him as buddy aces israel in um what's that film called i can't remember what it's called now uh but yeah it's uh oh smoking aces um oh. yes yeah, it's, it's, it's very different and yeah just following that um the player i watched weirdly i think it was the film that suggested up on prime next man about town 2006 with ben affleck i have never heard of this film no that doesn't um, ring about with me either it's it's it sort of a it's a good double bill really it's directed by someone called mike binder don't know who he is um but but i'll just read out the stars right and this is possibly why neither of us have ever heard of it ben affleck rebecca romjin john cleese and jerry o'connell it's not the, the ensemble you would first imagine is it it sounds so soft and it is it's effectively like a almost an, an updated version of the player just much, much more bland with like really little to say. Um, he's a talent agent called Jack Giamoro, uh, Ben Affleck, and he's got like the career and the wife. And then he finds out that his wife, played by Rebecca Romjin, has, has uh, had an affair with someone played by Adam Goldberg, who's got the most preposterous hair in the world in this film. I thought it was like a wig and there was going to be a joke about it. No. Um, it's weirdly dated. It's like they, they they make this a couple of jokes about retards in it, and you think, eh, it's uh, from a film that's so bland. You don't you don't need to use terms like that. You can you know, just use another bland term like you've done for everything. I saw people online on IMDb saying that this was like really like rolling around in the aisles, funny, really surprised by it. It is so. It is possibly the most generic film I've ever seen. Um, <laughs> There's uh, and also one of the biggest distractions in it. There's a sequence in this film where um, a comedy sequence where Ben Affleck gets into a fight and his teeth get smashed out and he has to have them replaced. And he looks like Roger Rabbit for a bit because they botched the operation. He's got these two ridiculously long front teeth. And then he gets them filed down. Like, obviously, that happens 15 minutes and then he gets them fixed and it's like back to business as usual. The problem is Ben Affleck, if you remember, in the early to mid 2000s, did actually have his teeth fixed. Um, right. If you yeah. watch it in in like uh, more rats and stuff, he's got his teeth. They're not bad. They're just obviously not perfect. But so throughout this film, anyway, up until that scene, I was watching it thinking, your teeth look too big for your mouth. It's like puffed. Because I thought there was something wrong with his face. And I realized, no, it's where your teeth don't quite, they've overfill your mouth. So your cheeks are like puffed up. So then when they bring in the teeth gag, it's like, well, and then they fix it afterwards. You think it just still looks a bit iffy, Ben. I mean, you probably should have said, can we take that scene out? I wonder our attention to it. There is one funny sequence in the whole film, and it, it, it's almost worth it just for this one thing. It's where he gets revenge on the man who who's attacked him with it, and he goes into his house with a baseball bat, and he's, and he's got these, like, buck teeth, and he's hitting him on the floor with this baseball bat. And there's one second 
in the whole thing where he's so angry as he's beating this bloke up that he kind of does this backswing like it's like he loses his rhythm and does this weird like mid-ear swing even though the guy's on the floor in front of him and like gasps because uh, he's so angry like a massive inhalation at his own <laughs> anger and and it's obviously just a tiny thing but it really tickled me um the fact that you, he's like so in the moment that he's completely lost control of his limbs and his breathing pattern so that tickled <laughs> me um yeah so that but yeah other than that it's absolutely completely and utterly missable mike binder yes i was just i mean a quick glance is filmography and it's quite an unremarkable career but he did he did make a, a, did a tv series called nashville i'm wondering if that's got anything to do with robert altman as well because robert altman obviously made a film called nashville in the 70s so i wonder if he's just a massive robert altman fan i don't know <laughs> Could it be. could well be. I just saw Minority. You, I just clicked on it myself, and I saw. Oh my god, he directed Blank Man. Oh, that film. <laughs> oof, oof. The Wayne's Brothers. Um. So yeah, I'll, I'll I'll hand it over back to you. This is where I have to start asking if I've covered these already, because uh, just to make sure I haven't got my notes mixed up. Have I talked about Twister in the last couple of weeks? Uh, I don't think you have. I don't think we've covered Twister yet, have we? Um, no. Twister is on Netflix and uh, it was Jan de Bont's follow-up to Speed. It's made in okay. uh, 1994 was when Speed was made. This was made in 1996. Um, Bill Paxton plays an ex-storm chaser who tracks down his wife, played by Helen Hunt, to get her signature on the divorce papers. Mother Nature throws a bunch of tornadoes at them, pushing them closer together and pulling Bill Paxton away from his current partner, who's a bit of a bore. Um, and it all culminates in the ultimate storm, an F5, um, which is a big tornado. Um, it's also course, Brock Lesnar's finishing move in wrestling for those for those interested. Is that a reference to this storm? or? Well, it's, it was originally, uh, when he first started wrestling, it was called the Bill Paxton, so I'm assuming so. <laughs> Um, right. And yeah, so all of the tornadoes obviously turn up perfectly on cue to prompt various relationship stages um, as the film goes on. The script in this film, it sounds like they're reading stage directions, to be honest, like this, because um, Carrie Elwes is in it. It's kind of this rival group of storm chasers who rely on like all like cutting edge technology rather than just their instincts. Um, and at one point, Bill Paxton literally says about Carrie Alvarez's character, oh, he's in it for the money, not the science. So basically it's like, it's like that was a, a description of the character in, in the script, in the notes, and he's just re read the wrong bit. Uh, but anyway, <clears throat> so yeah, it's, um, in terms of the technology, essentially what they're doing is they're chasing these storms so they can feed this big barrel of like tiny little like helicopter drone things into the tornado and get kind of readings on it. Um, it's kind of dated in terms of the tech because, of course, this could this technology could simply be just drones now, which would pretty much render a remake pointless because they wouldn't have to get anywhere near the tornado. But it's a very dumb script anyway, with really basic character motivations and interactions. The dissolution of Bill Paxton's relationship with his current partner is ridiculously predictable. Like, 
and and when it finally happens you're just like oh thank god for that just just she's the ultimate ball and chain she's just constantly disapproving of everything he does and for a psychologist because she's meant to be a psychologist his boring partner and it's like for a psychologist she just seems remarkably clueless about other people's motivations uh, and <laughs> totally lacking insight into any other ways of living um <laughs> like for example she goes like they the the group kind of stop off at um helen hunt's aunt's house and and they eat um like some beef which is from a cow that she's raised so she's obviously slaughtered it herself and cooked it and and the put the boring wife uh, like boring partner her reaction to it she's just utterly horrified that anyone could live like this and it's like well surely you've come across people who live on say a farm or you can imagine it you know anyway. well that's not that's not even some like alien like a tribe you've happened across in peru that's just someone saying i, I raise and slaughter my own food that's yeah. like it's so basic yeah. <laughs> so the cgi is okay for the time i would say being charitable it's too silly to take seriously there's like in terms of the way that nature actually works in this movie is ridiculous and so selective there's a moment where where they're they're in this um bill paxton and helen they're in this tiny truck like this kind of um like small like pickup truck and they're driving along quite happily. And yet there's this huge oil tanker just floating above them, like caught by the wind. And it's like, well, so this, what, 20 ton oil tanker is being lifted easily and just tossed about. And yet you're just driving along beneath it. It's like, I'm not sure that's how tornadoes work. Just going to say it. Um, and also, <laughs> why, how is it? by the end that they're able to literally just run away from the tornado even though it's clearly strong enough to tear buildings apart around them like there are buildings being ripped from their very foundations around them and yet they're just like oh, just a bad hair day for them does no. it does bill paxton have like golf shoes on with spikes that he's like <laughs> digging in as he runs or maybe that was it maybe that's what i was missing i think i saw yeah i, I did see that um helen hunt had put on some like uh climbing spikes actually as she's <laughs> um possibly just a pair of tennis rackets on her shoes um it, it is it is a very fast-paced film um, and it's not unexciting in a very basic way and it's nice to it's nice to see philip seymour hoffman play a role quite against type really he's a bit of a, like a stoner dude that was quite nice see him in there and and Bill Paxton's always good, and you know Helen Hunt's good as well. They're both, uh, and they do have real chemistry, so it's enjoyable enough. But it has, it, in terms of depicting tornadoes, it has just no respect for nature whatsoever. It treats tornadoes as basically monsters, even to the point of like having this kind of snarling, monster growling noise when they come along. Um, it never feels like you're watching a depiction of this unfathomable force of nature it just seems like you're watching a monster movie really that um, reminds me of um i remember reading um i can't remember what it was it was probably something for this podcast um about fire and how in so many films when you see fire chiefs fire stations saying things like 
Uh, fire is a living, breathing thing, yeah, as if it's like an actual monster. I look at you, backdraft. <laughs> and apparently, like, it's not. It's not like it's re- really trying. It's like actual fire service say like that's it's not that that's a terrible thing to say <laughs> really misleading people um that you'd be able to kind of track it with your own instincts rather than just treating it as just a reason reason with it reasoning yeah. with fire my best album uh i released um my i've never seen twister weirdly it's one that's always passed me by really? yeah i don't know i don't know why and that's the moment and I always think that Laura Dern's in it as well. Or maybe maybe it's Linda Hamilton and not Helen Hunt. Um, well, I think uh, I think Laura Dern and Helen Hunt almost have that similar kind of appeal. That they're not classical beauties, but they're very good actors and, and can portray someone very kind of down-to-earth and relatable. Uh, yeah, so it's not a million miles away from like Laura Dern's character, say, in Jurassic Park. Um, the two things linked to Twister that I do have are I went to, uh, when I went to America at last, it must have been about 10 years ago, whatever, and they still had the Twister ride there, and it was really, really dated with like the flying cow and stuff. And it was it was just oddly endearing. I think it's gone now. And the other thing is, whenever I think of Twister, I remember my one of my friends who shall remain nameless, and it, it's not um, erotic David for a change. Um, he he used to go to the cinema near us when we were teens and get the huge I don't know what they are A one posters or whatever and collect them put them up and he had like um uh, uh, from dusk till dawn <laughs> liar liar uh, a couple of other classics and he also had uh, <laughs> the cable guy and he also had Twister which is like his favorite one and I remember him saying to me with his with his now wife at one point he rang me and said oh do you want to go out for a drink um. So we've, we, I've had a massive, massive argument with my, with my, my at the time girlfriend. I said, oh, oh, over what? What happened? And he said, oh, well, she wants me to take down my Twister poster from the living room. <laughs> and I know, I knew how much it meant to him. And it was, I'll, I'll be there in a second. I'm there for you. Uh, yeah, it just tickled me because all the other ones she'd taken systematically, taken all the others, and he'd had a special frame made for it. So I, I do have a special spot in my mind for Twister without actually seeing the film. Uh, I, I'm interested to see what you'd think of it going in now because I, I remember seeing it at the cinema and I think it was very cool at the time in the mid-90s because mm. it was very impressive and the CG had yet to date so uh, <laughs> it would be interesting yeah, to Is, see what you think of it Do they explain the difference in the film between like a, like a, a twister, a cyclone, a whirlwind and a, you know hurricane uh they don't go too in depth into the specific science no in fact they I'm just not, literally, I'm watching them. <laughs> they literally just give it put it on a scale of one to five that's it, that's <laughs> it. and then they use their instincts it's a yeah, little it's... bit mm, it's a little bit dubious all that stuff i get what it's meant to be like oh you know helen hunt's groups are the ones that just do it by their instincts and just know how this living creature is going to move and this kind of stuff but i if i was in that situation i'd go with the guys with the high-tech equipment to be honest tracking them uh, because they've got the equipment that you know can see where these things actually are and where they're going to land and stuff but but anyway well, i just realized as we know carriels is just in it for the money not the science <laughs> As we're specifically explicitly told, we Do couldn't they work say, it out for ourselves. 
do they say that like on this one to five F scale, is it like a one is just like some a child blowing up the candles on a birthday cake, and five is the universe turning inwards on itself? Pretty much, so, yeah. A, a scale that really should have more factors <laughs> in between one to five. Yeah. Well, F two is just the water going down the plug hole. <laughs> And then F3 is just like tearing entire skyscrapers from their foundations. <laughs> we could do with um, a few more Fs. Uh, yeah, like at least up to seven or eight. Um, so yeah, I watched, I watched, this is another two minute. Um, I, I watched a film called Friendsgiving. Um, but basically I walked in on this. So the, Faye was put a film on that she wanted completely in the background. And this film starring um, Malin Ackerman as a woman who is an actress in the film and she's got a best friend called Abby and they're both, they're, uh, both just want to have a quiet Thanksgiving together and the party gets out of hand and ex-boyfriends turn up and hilarity ensues. Um, it's a, sort of, they say it's a comedy drama. It's just a, it feels like a very loosely scripted, highly improvisational comedy. And I, and uh, the, the director, Nicole Peone apparently is, part of the groundlings comedy group and i think mm. it's just a film where she basically got all of her mates in to have a laugh about wow. 20 about 20 minutes into this film faye turned to me and said C- we can turn this off i don't want to watch anymore and i said da, 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 da. no we have begun so we shall finish and it was it's there's no point talking about the the plot because it's basically Malin Ackerman turns up in this house and and like a, a mother her Swedish mother played by Jane Seymour that must have been awkward because Jane Seymour's putting on a really unconvincing Swedish accent to Malin Ackerman who is Swedish um they 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 all turn up and like friends and the friends partners and ex boyfriends and all these odd people they haven't seen for ages turn up but no one is funny. <laughs> No one has mm. anything to say, and everyone is a stereotype. And the it's the film basically for me boiled down to just child abuse because through this party, as like Malin Ackerman is um, supposed to have this quiet you know, friends giving with um, her friend played by Kat Jennings, who's just come out as a lesbian. Um, she's got a child who looks to be like between one and two years of age in like a in a cot upstairs. And throughout this film, where she is just taking magic mushrooms, getting off with blokes, uploading videos to herself on social media, pretending to suck off an invisible dick while she's dancing, which she then gets horrified mm. at later on, as if someone else has done it. And I thought, no, you did that. You, you, this is like <laughs> you've been tricked. Your action. You just did that when you were relatively sober. Um. So yeah, it's it, it's as, as she like taking drugs and drinking and like basically cheating on her current boyfriend and stuff. Her son is just being massively neglected. Uh, and it's like, mm. and what's odd is it seems to be some sort of f- attempting to be like a female wish fulfillment film that's really misjudged because it's they, obviously these women are all in their sort of thirties and they've got kids and husbands and stuff. And when they get together away from them, they just sort of reminisce and say, oh, let's just do a lot of drugs. And I think, I don't think women are like that. I don't think people are, mm. you know, when they have children, they don't just think, oh my God, I wish I could just go out second off loads of dudes and take in mushrooms all night it's like mm. so you know it, it's, it's like, like that, women that behaving it. badly kind of movie yes um I, i'm and... questioning this yes i do question this is the next step in feminism whether this is like a valuable thing to be depicting you see other what's the one with marla kunis um bad mums oh bad right mums, you know that sort of thing where yeah. it's like uh you know like well if men can do it, then we can be just as bad and just as kind of 
amoral and repugnant. I, pff, I'm not sure it really serves the purpose yeah. they think it's serving. <laughs> I wouldn't want to watch a load of blocks doing that. So it, it, yeah, either exactly. way, I'm not going to watch. Um, and also, just one final thing. It, it commits, as far as I'm concerned, the absolute cardinal sin of at the end of the film it shows a lot of outtakes and it's very clear that the actors are having much more fun than we are and also the lines the lines in the outtakes are better than the ones in the film but they're not used because everyone keeps corpsing so i i wonder if they just thought we'll have to use all the bland lines because that's when no one laughs because what's being said is not funny ah uh, yeah so yeah it's just it's absolute mess i don't know who would like this film what where is it available if they do netflix it's on yeah. netflix Sounds like an absolute. Um, blue. I don't think we've gone over this yet, have we? No, this is what I wanted to talk about. So this yeah. is perfect. I'll let you take the lead. Prime. This is on. Um, 2002. It's a gritty cop thriller directed by Ron Shelton of all people, who known for White Man Can't Jump, Tin Cup, Bull Durham. Tin Cup. Um, what a classic. Best film <clears throat> ever made. It's a cop thriller in the kind of tradition of the French Connection. Uh, sort of in that very grey area between criminality and cops. It's written by David Ayer uh, of Training Day, Harsh Times fame, and also James Elroy, LA Confidential guy. And it's set in the early 90s uh, against the backdrop of the Rodney King trial slash acquittal. Um, and it stars Kurt Russell and... Basically, Kurt Russell's young partner is cleared of malpractice after a fatal shooting, and he and his cop buddies are basically just racist and homophobic. Ving Rhames is a board member on um, this uh, sort of high-up executive board. He's the one member to vote against the decision um, to kind of clear them. Brendan Gleeson Brendan is a very corrupt captain. Um, so... Brendan Gleeson, he gets Kurt Russell and this kid, basically, to investigate these shootings at a Korean store. Um, and he, what he's hoping is that they'll just catch whoever and just sign the paperwork, be done with it. But it turns out that um, they're actually circling Brendan Gleeson's informants and and they're about to sort of uncover this terrible conspiracy. Um and it's, so it all comes down to like, okay, Kurt Russell's a very unpleasant character. So is he going to have a kind of redeeming moment here or not? Sort of thing. It's, it's sort of like his character arc. It's um, it's very well directed, well lit, well edited. Uh, the music sounds, it sounds about 15 years out of date. It's weird. It's by Terence Blanchard, the music. He was a, he's his trumpeter. He's worked okay. on a lot of Spike Lee films. It's kind of like soft rock, soft hip hop, and eighties prog. It's quite weird <laughs> score. I'm not quite sure why they that did that. Um, you'd think that they would just get a bunch of like early nineties hip hop, really, or something like that, to you know, given the subject matter. But anyway, Kurt Russell's brilliant in this film. He's like, he's got that confident, grouchy, menacing persona, and he uses it really well. Uh, and of course, he has this disarming charisma, um, whilst but combined with these horrible views. And as with many a David Ayer film, as we've discussed before, it it's a film which becomes less plausible as the dramatic coincidences pile up. So by the end, it's kind of absurd, but it does end with a really cool 
scene. I, I love scenes like climaxes in films where someone makes a big speech to humiliate someone. I don't know why. I just love that sort of <laughs> stuff. So it's got that, um, which is brilliant. Um, you know, rather than just a massive shootout or whatever, it, it could have been that. But this is much more satisfying. It, especially because... Brendan Gleeson's rebuttal to that is basically looking at people and saying, oh, he's pissed. He's pissed. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh, yeah. Brendan Gleeson. Brendan Gleeson's really good in it as well. It's, it's just really well acted. It's just a really well-made movie. I enjoyed it a lot. Uh, yeah. I'm not sure it did very well at the time, but clearly it's in this quite a pretty solid tradition of uh, modern movies like this, most of them written or directed by David Ayer, um, which depict this LA underworld, uh, this LA corruption. And it's probably quite, probably is quite an accurate description of what the LAPD was like at the time, because if nothing else came out of the Rodney King debacle, then it definitely did uncover some pretty nasty pieces of work in the LAPD. I did. So um, you watched it, this as well? Yeah, I watched it. I really liked it. I did find, um, I mean, I don't know as much about the history of the LAPD police department as you, but when I was watching it, I did. I really, really liked it. But I did find that um, the Jack Van Meter, played by Brendan Gleeson's character, almost sort of a cartoonishly evil villain in in the things he does. Yeah, I did like Ving Rhames in this. I thought he was yeah. like really understated. I really liked Ving Rhames, and I did wonder when when you see Kurt Russell go home to his wife and <laughs> talk to her, and you just think, why did you marry that man? Because mm. he's just even when he's at home and he's you know relaxing with his family, he's completely insufferable. I liked as well that um, you just never see his son until the end. It's yeah. almost like he just has no family life. It's just all about all the awful things he gets up to at work and what he can get away with. Yeah. But I really liked it. It was it's probably the only I realized it's between this and Underworld, like what happened to Scott Speedman? That man just disappeared. <laughs> as did um, Dash Me Hawk. <laughs> In defense of Brendan Gleeson, I suppose what perhaps they're going for there is almost like an amalgamation of various real-life uh, corrupt captains of the term. I suspect he's sort of a combination of various people. Did you notice? And, and I suppose he's, he, he sort of embodies the corruption of the time. Did you notice that Brendan Gleeson also had a fruit machine in the corner of his office at the LAPD? I didn't actually know. It's bizarre when there's one scene where Kit Russell walks in, and you can just see a fruity in the corner. I thought that's such a bizarre thing to have. In, not a pool table or like an arcade machine. Something somewhere you just like lose money, like <laughs> to yourself. It's just yeah, really people's bizarre. lives. Uh, every um, every quarter is a life. <laughs> okay. Yes, that's dark blue. Good. Yes, definitely. Everyone should watch that. Um, one they should probably give a miss is um, Legionnaire, the John Claude Van Damme film from 1998, uh, written this by John Claude Van Damme. This probably an alternative title, in America, didn't it? Bound to have. Um, I don't, I don't think so. Actually, I think it doesn't really? say anything here. Yeah. Hmm. Um, the film is this kicks off, and John Claude Van Damme is a French boxer called Alain Duchamp who uh, is paid to throw a fight. Uh, and doesn't and to get away from the mob that are after him because he didn't throw the fight he signs up to the french foreign legion and through there it's a totally generic film 
Um, this is a two minute, by the way, a totally generic film where, you know, he, he gets trained up, realizes, you know, over his head, is it, was he better off not to join in, but then he falls into it, makes some friends, you know, uh, like, like a, a put upon obviously for the time to set the twenties black man, uh, and like a, a sort of English retired Colonel who's a bit dodgy. And then the mob find out where he is and get involved. And this all, as they're after him, it ties into a big showdown, um, in a desert with, with a, a lot of uh, fighting the sort of local Arabs. Um, the end in it, by the way, is quite cool because it's everyone just gets slaughtered. <laughs> like it's really re- like remorseless oh. in just completely how like outmanned and outgunned they are. Also, I was a bit, I thought surely this is a bad plan where they force the men to march to get into the fight with these, these Arabs to just take them out, but they force them to march like for miles and miles in the desert. And you think by the time they get there, they're going to be knackered. And that's exactly what happens. They're completely <laughs> Gary bushled by the time the fight actually kicks off. So surely there's a better way to plan this. And the only thing I really, Oh, music by, um, Oh no, sorry. I thought it said Robert Altman. Then it's John Altman. Um, directed by Peter McDonald. What else has that man done? Let's have a look at his career. Super, oh, as a camera, where is he? As as director, Rambo 3, Mo Money, The Young Indiana Jones Chronicles, Never Ended Story 3, and an episode of Tales from the Crypt, and then Legion Ace. What a, what a career. Um, the bit in this that tickled me is that when the, the mob find out where Jean-Claude Van Damme is through a picture in the news, but me paper, um, the way the mob say, right, we're going to get our revenge on this man who like ripped us off a load of money by not throwing a fight. He turns, the leader of the mob turns to two of his closest henchmen and says, I want you to track him down. I want you to join the foreign legion. And the henchmen just, just do it. And I thought, surely you'd say they must, they must be, we know where he is. Let's just go there and kill him. Like, why do we have to to have a career change? And then it shows them like literally going through the training, this really tough, remorseless training and then catching up with him. And then just sort of, instead of just killing him and getting off with it, they just like threaten him for ages as they like walking through this desert instead of just shooting him and buggering off they it's like they've just joined the foreign legion and get completely caught up in the events <laughs> you're like what um <laughs> imagine that um so it's like someone saying to me oh yeah brit i know you're a hitman for the mob um and but we found out that this guy is um actually taken refuge under a false identity in an accountancy firm so we want you to go and get aat qualified so you can get close to him. But okay, not very good at math. So it just poses. It just poses a client, maybe. I don't know. I know. Yeah. Get fully qualified. No, it's not on the F. It's not on the FC one. Yeah, we've enrolled you in the Open University. Um, yeah, it's just it's like okay, but that was funny. Um, the film is it's okay. It's no Sahara with James Belushi though. Clearly, has it got decent fight scenes at all? Does. Does Jean-Claude Van Damme do the splits at any point? I don't think so. I think he splits like a bottle of water with someone at some point because they're a bit peckish and thirsty. Um, it's not that. It's more about like an. It's a film about endurance, really, and sort of you know the mm. human spirit. But also, it's one of those films, weirdly, that I like where. You know, there's a big shootout, and it's almost like a big Western-style shootout, and they've got these old rifles, and then someone gets shot. There's no blood, and then they just roll down a sand dune for ages. Good. Good. So yeah. <laughs> That's fine. <laughs> and it was uh, filmed in Tangier and, uh, and in Morocco, so it's not on an industrial estate, which is something. Something I can't say about the next film I'm going to talk about. <laughs> right, okay. 
Well, I'll uh, I'll briefly. What, what? Where is that available? Is that on Prime by any chance? But it's like you can see my notes. Yes, it is on Prime. <laughs> also on Prime, Terror Train, um, which was made in 1980, and this is part of the of Jamie Lee Curtis's Scream Queen phase. Uh, made the same year as Prom Night, in fact, um, and. It's uh, it's a horror movie, obviously. It's a slash movie. It opens with, uh, they're all med students. It opens with this prank that, um, where uh, Jamie Lee Curtis seduces this nerdy guy to a room and uh, and he inadvertently climbs into, he unknowingly climbs into bed with uh, a corpse because, of course, they can get these corpses from uh, med school. Uh, and it traumatizes him. Um and she feels instantly very guilty about it. Um, skip forward three years, uh, and they've qualified, and it's New Year's Eve, and they've gone on this big costume party on a train, uh, and there is a killer stalking around. And uh, in an interesting little twist, he each time he kills someone, he steals their costume to hide his, the, uh, his identity. So, And then he goes around, obviously moves on to the next person, kill them, steals their costume, etc., um, this was the first film directed by Roger Spottiswood. Uh, I know that name. name. Yeah. Uh, he went on to direct Air America and Turner and Hooch and The Sixth Day. Uh, uh, there, there it is. Yeah. Yeah. So Roger Spottiswood, he apparently wasn't particularly enamored with slasher movies. So this is a bit of an off-screen slasher. There's not that much sort of, uh, you know, in-your-face gore. Um, interestingly, John Alcott was a cinematographer, and I know him. He shot The Shining actually in the same year, and the mm. the lighting does have this similarly kind of naturalistic muted tone to it, so it looks quite beautiful. Um, obviously, Jamie Lee Curtis stars, and she's great as always. There's an extended cameo. Well, no, actually, no, no, even a cameo. It's just a part for David Copperfield. He is literally doing magic tricks. He <laughs> is doing magic tricks in this film, and. And I thought, uh, is this just an excuse? Is is he just a mate of someone's and they've just brought him in to just show off his tricks? But to be fair, it is quite consistent with the film's theme of us kind of thinking we know what's happening, but we don't sort of thing. And he does play quite a key part in it. So it's nicely shot. It's well paced. The characters, considering they're young and excited and drunk, are not too irritating actually and there's a good balance in the film between the different plot threads so you've got the investigation the crew of the train are investigating the murders because they're out of contact basically and they're investigating the murders so you've got that part of it you've got jamie lee curtis's character is weirdly infatuated with the magician character uh finds him very seductive and that and, and then of course you've got the killings themselves so it's Got some pretty interesting little plot threads going on. There were, I think, the studio at least was going for Halloween on a train, um, and it's not quite there. It's not quite that standard. They obviously couldn't capture recapture that sort of simple brutality that Halloween had. So this is much twistier and more character focused. But it does have some good tension. Slightly disappointed kills. A genuinely menacing killer when he finally reveals himself and it has a pretty cool twist at the end so it's it's definitely an above average slasher from that period mm. um, and quite atmospheric 
thanks to that kind of quite luscious cinematography, considering how constrained it is, obviously. Yeah. Um, yeah, so I, it's quietly recommended, I think. Terror that, Train. That's what I'm going to be watching tonight, then. It sounds like it's not as good as Night Train 2 Terror, but... Um, <laughs> what is? Uh, so, yeah, I Lots. will... Um, I'll watch, I will watch that. That probably watch good. that tonight, to be honest. I, I suspect it's under ninety minutes as well. So good, good. Um, oh yeah, Mortal Kombat. By the way, it says it's an hour fifty, da, 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 under one hour forty, eleven minutes of credits at the end. Um, uh, Armed Response is a twenty seventeen film described as an action horror film, um, and this this film this film is not very good. That's an old saying I'm trying to bring back. It's made by WWE Studios. And at the time, I didn't know, but Gene Simmons is part of a production company called Erebus or Erebus Pictures. So they did it. It's a joint thing. Obviously, Gene Simmons from Kiss and WWE, the the wrestling um, corporation. Gene Simmons is in this film almost uh, like he's without his wig. So he's bald. And so he's kind of hardly recognizable anyway. And he's basically just like an image on a screen briefly. And I, at one point, like when I told uh, one of our friends this, they said, "Did he lose a bet?" And I thought that I, that generally must have been it. Like, why, why would he appear in a film like without his wig on for for a second? I, I don't know. Um, the film stars Wesley Snipes and Hesh and Seth Rollins, who is a wrestler. And yeah. I want to watch this because I watched Blade Blade Trinity, which I don't think I've spoken about yet. And I was kind of in a Wesley Snipes mood, and I didn't want to watch Money Train again. So I thought, oh, I'll chuck on armed response, because obviously this would have been after he, um, when he came back from... from prison? Not, yes, not paying his filofax for, for some time. So, um, yeah, he the film starts off, and it's Wesley Snipes, who looks great. He's like he's obviously would have been 55 at the time. And mm. he goes to a house on stilts where there's a guy looking at a picture of a child who's obviously passed away in some tragic accident just drinking and you know it's a usual wesley saying we need you back um dave dave An- An- anable anable is the guy's name or dave anable um no idea who he is all i know is that his hair color doesn't match his beard and he says we need you for you know one one last thing we need your help and he goes back to his crack team of special forces operatives and they have to break into a compound because there's a sort of a, a computer effectively that was used under torture because it can tell when someone's lying and um, extract information and it's becoming sentient can you guess on what kind of estate this building <laughs> is located um a housing estate or is it another know. type of estate it's an industrial uh, estate. Oh, <laughs> right. estate it's a disused prison and they they go and they just say outright ah oh, it's in a disused prison this this high-tech you know government-run compound by the way oh of course it is um let's get on the train then two tickets to Romania is in <laughs> <laughs> so yeah they they go there and the whole film is them wondering what's going on realizing it and then basically being attacked mostly by seemingly invisible forces so it's really boring it's just a load of people walking around bickering with each other when they should clearly be more highly trained for the situation in a really clinically clinically lit cheap looking even though it's filmed on an industrial estate in a district prison, it somehow looks like a set all the time because it's just so blandly set up. 
uh, the lighting and stuff. And it's just them being thrown against walls by the invisible forces. So there's not even kind of a cool monster to see that's made of disappointing CG. Um, I rhymed. Mm-hmm. There's a scene where Anne Heche gets in, uh, a nearly 50-year-old woman gets into a fight with a 20-year-old SAS-trained wrestler and holds her on for a while. Good, good. Um, and yeah, it's... It's just boring. It's the it's the worst crime an action film can be, where it's just people wandering around bickering and then having really boring gunfights where no one gets shot and it's just people ducking behind tables firing forever. Um, it's all just really... I don't know if it's supposed to be made to feel claustrophobic, but it just feels cheap and there's a lot of like fisheye lens and stuff like that and you think no oh, I'm, I'm not i'm not going to recommend this it's got a i know we don't care about rotten tomatoes but it's got a naught percent score on wow. rotten tomatoes the only way i would say you might want to watch this film and the only reason is if you want to see what gene simmons looks like without a wig and for that you can go on google google images so don't bother gene simmons was in a good uh horror movie from the 80s called trick or treat where um a kid like play he like runs his uh like vinyl backwards and summons uh like an evil spirit and he's played by gene simmons it's quite good gene simmons play uh like a arab terrorist in a film i watched not so long ago mm. hang on hang on i mean he yeah. sounds like the obvious choice to play an arab terrorist Come on, where is it? Where's it? Oh God, where's his, where's his, where's his filmography? Here we go. It was in the eighties. Oh, it was Wanted, Dead or Alive with Rutger Hauer, eighty-six, eighty-seven. Okay. That was it. Yeah. Okay, so where is that? Another prime go to gold? <laughs> the fact that you sigh when you say it. Yes, yes, it was on Prime. Yes. All right. Well, continuing with the Prime theme, you've got mail. You have got mail. Um which was made in 1998, directed by Nora Ephron. Uh, you know, after the success of Sleepless in Seattle, um, bring, bringing back Tom Hanks and Meg Ryan before she mutilated her face. Uh, Tom Hanks, he runs, uh, he runs this book-selling mega-business, basically, and he's swamping indies. This is all set in New York. He's swamping independent stores to build his his dad's business, basically. Uh, now, Meg Ryan owns this independent bookstore, um, and so, of course, she's threatened by this takeover, this possible takeover. Um, moreover, both Hanks and Ryan, they're both with people they don't really like, Um uh, she's obviously with Greg Kinnear. Um, <laughs> is it possible, I wonder, if Tom Hanks and Meg Ryan will end up together? So the twist here is that Tom Hanks and Meg Ryan, although they're publicly at odds with each other, they don't realise that they have been longtime pen pals over email. Um, so in real life, they hate each other, but online, they're basically falling in love. Fine. OK. <laughs> However... Uh, and this is where things get a little bit creepy. However, then Tom Hanks and Tom Hanks alone discovers the identity of his pen pal. He realizes that it's her. Right. So for the for the second half of this movie, Tom Hanks knows Meg Ryan's online identity, but not vice versa. Consider that for a moment, okay? Okay, okay. So consider that power imbalance just for a moment. (laughs) Then 
consider the tendency of rom-coms anyway to normalize slightly unethical and immoral behavior and it's a recipe for frankly discomfort at best like it's a deeply asymmetrical romance that we were talking about here on the plus side i'd say that all of the email stuff is quite charmingly dated because it it was made at a time when email was really still just a novelty and the question that's often asked in this movie is are you online which was a genuine query back then so that was quite sweet um i I noticed that they hadn't yet and this is quite a key point they hadn't yet worked out how to make online activity visually interesting right because obviously nowadays you'll have like someone doing a text or something uh, or an email but usually a text and you'll see the text trickle across the screen and they'll make it visual so mm. you can have the person like just tapping. reacting to it yeah yeah but on the screen it'll have the text come up so it's like okay that's what i'm going to be looking at i'm not really focusing on the person's face or whatever I, i'm just looking at what the text is coming up on the screen i can tell what's happening here of course they don't do that what they do is they just completely leave it up to the actors to act out their feelings as they stare at a screen whilst there's a voiceover so uh, and it meg ryan in particular is utterly cringeworthy in this respect so everything she types she's like reacting to it by screwing up her face and like gurning and it's like she's a silent movie actor it's ridiculous uh, so whatever she said she'll basically act it out even though she's completely on her own ridiculous she just seems mental throughout this whole film by the way like oh. there's one moment where online via email tom hanks's character suggests that she fight for her business right and then the next day we see her literally standing in the middle of her store loads of customers around and she's just like throwing punches at imaginary enemies like she's fighting it's insufferable she's horrendous. Awful. it's so uncharming and speaking of uncharming tom hanks he when you think about like something like sleepless in seattle he was defined by his relatable humility and in this he is not charming at all he's just smug apart from anything of course he's just he's just a really money power hungry uh kind of corporate executive and at one point which is meant again it's meant to be romantic he he's with meg ryan in the store and this is the first moment that Meg Ryan thinks, oh, this, this is a nice guy. He's a cool guy. Basically, she is in the wrong queue and um, she can't pay uh, on a card. She has to pay with cash, but she doesn't have cash. So he comes to her defense and basically um, publicly humiliates this young woman at the checkout, like really publicly in front of everyone, making her feel awful, forcing her to do, uh, to do something she shouldn't be doing. And we're supposed to be attracted to this ruthless rude infinitely wealthy capitalist guy anyway so that's him but yeah so anyway going back to the original thing of this whole asymmetry in this uh, so obviously you've got this situation where tom hanks knows her identity she doesn't know his in the end you know they're going to end up you know meeting and realizing and she's going to realize who he is now a bit of a spoiler but you know can you guess whether she finds out who he is in the end uh his true identity can you guess whether she a uh looks at him and is utterly appalled by the fact that he's been stringing her along for this entire time um 
and he's and rejects him for being totally unethical and actually quite stalkerish and creepy or b whether she's so over the moon and uh so relieved and she just falls into his arms <laughs> uh, do you know I, and I was, I was going to go the other way but off the tone of your voice I think I know which one I'm going to choose it was stunning I couldn't believe it was going to happen and yet it was so inevitable it's a really creepy movie and without even the saving grace of either of the leads being charming in any way is it at least because of the 2001 does it have a scene where he is online it's 1998, sorry, where he's on, that's even better, where he's online and he sends her an email saying, oh, hey, what are you up to? And then he opens up another tab and types in www.douglas.co.uk backslash web promote backslash celebs and loosens his belt buckle. <laughs> yeah, that's not, it's not really in the kind of Nora Ephron <laughs> gentle romantic uh-huh. style. So uh-huh. maybe just cut. Is it a worse? Is it a sort of more morally repugnant film than the one you watch with Ben Stiller? I forget where, again, where the woman seems to make a really baffling choice of love interest at the end. Uh, oh, the reality bites. Yeah, the, yeah. Um, well, at least that had some interesting characters in it, even though she made the wrong decision at the end. I suppose <laughs> you could argue that that's consistent with her character making the wrong decision. But in this, it's like we're really meant to think that this is the most romantic thing in the world. It's hmm. quite. It's quite unbelievable. It's up there with um, uh, Ryan Gosling's behaviour at the start of The Notebook, where he literally uh, bullies this woman into going on a date with him by threatening to kill himself. Unbelievable. And <laughs> this is romance, apparently. <laughs> um, I thought romance is just where you keep your hands in your pockets. That's my idea of romance when I'm on a date. Um, <laughs> well, um, especially when uh, it comes to paying. <laughs> um, uh, are we going to go halves, darling? I'm afraid I've glued my hands to my pocket, so I can't. Um, I say I'm afraid. I meant to say I'm glad I've glued my hands to my pocket. <laughs> I'm glad, and it was deliberate. <laughs> Um, I watched a film from 2003, which is a film that I I really do you have these little sort of um, indie films that pop up every now and again. And I say indie mid budget that you, you, you realize you've seen secretly about 20 or 30 times and you just they're just almost like comfort films. Yeah. Um, this is a film called Shade from 2003. It's uh, described on Wikipedia as a neo-noir crime thriller, but it's a card film. It's a it's a film about uh, sort of card mechanics and um, sleight of hand, which I've always liked, which is why I mentioned it on smoking aces and things like that. Um, it stars Stuart Townsend. It was I think he on the cover of this film. He looks like Darren Brown, um, but I've never I don't know his name. I don't think I've ever seen him in anything else. And you've got uh, Tandy Newton, Gabriel Byrne, Jamie Foxx, Melanie Griffith, and Sylvester Stallone. It's a film um, where with shown the legend of a, a card player called the Dean played by Sylvester Stallone who sort of survived a mob shootout um, through skill and uh, wits when he was younger and now he's seen as this untouchably uh, good card player who just goes around making millions and the plot focuses on it's effectively a heist movie on Tandy Newton and Gabriel Byrne who are a couple that 
sort of do little cons uh, here and there and they drag in Stuart Townsend who's someone called a card mechanic who's someone who can obviously make certain hands um, appear and he's, he's good with his fingers and they try to get involved in this really high stakes poker game run by uh, a member of the mob and finally sort of take down the Dean and have all the money and it's very much a film about double cross after double cross after double cross which is fine but it's a really it's got this sort of like jazzy music it's it's not very set pc it's it's very quiet and it has a lot of people smoking tandy newton smokes fags in this film smoking drinking loads of whiskey and just seeing like lots of cool card tricks and the the introduction is quite a nice actually the introduction as the credits roll is you seeing a, these are the standard top-down view of someone doing a load of card tricks and then in at the end credits it shows the camera under the table um, a glass table and how the tricks are actually done which i thought was really cool and the film is very much um the characters names of plays on famous uh, card magicians sleight of hand magicians close up hal holbrook plays a guy called the professor based on someone called Di vernon who's one of the best sleight of hand um, magicians to have ever lived and it's just like a it feels although it's you know people getting shot in the face and there's a bit of language it feels oddly nice and comforting because it's so at its heart it's just about a pretty straightforward heist and it, it right. just seems oddly rewatchable just because of all the card tricks and the drinking going on um uh if you're in the shoes of someone who is watching it for the first time do you think they would uh slip into it like a pair of comfy shoes i think they would yeah, yeah. i think it's it's so sort of inoffensive um okay so yeah it's it's it just seems like a film film kind of like hard eight with um oh what is that man's name i always forget the the father in dirty dancing oh <laughs> uh, I three know names one mean, yeah yeah hard but either way that's got that's got uh john c riley in it it's another one of those films where i just find them oddly these sort of casino-y films you know right they're just yeah. comfortable to watch so definitely um, recommend that you see Molly's Game. That's another cas- recent casino one, isn't it? No, face saw that in the cinema, and I, I need I need to watch that as well. I do like a good uh, I do like a good gambling film, even though I don't gamble myself, um, apart from with with my health, obviously. <laughs> the only reason why I know Stuart Townsend is because he um, dated Charlize Theron, so oh, okay. obviously got a contract out on his head after that. But thankfully they broke up, so it's, he's okay. He's safe. Um, so I've still got a chance. <laughs> Uh, right, I've I'll come to my final selection for this week. Then, oh, okay. what's that on? By the way, what's, where's Shade available? Um, Shade is on. Is it on Netflix? I think it's. I think it's Netflix. Yeah. Also on Netflix then is Close Encounters of the Third Kind, which was. Uh, made in 1977 by Steven Spielberg. It's an alien invasion film for kids, kind of. I say that with a question mark because actually when you boil it down, it's a movie about child abduction which focuses on a father who loses his mind and then loses his family. (laughs) But um, so uh, meanwhile this government agency deciphers the aliens musical code and the mood of the film does change so it's not quite as dark as it sounds um and it, it's interesting 
uh, well, I'll, I'll go through the plot very briefly. It's basically a bunch of civilians, including Richard Dreyfus. They witness these alien spacecraft come down in Wyoming, obviously. Um, and, you know, it's quite a magical experience for them. And they're, and from there on, they're inexplicably drawn to this, uh, this rural location called the Devil's Tower. Meanwhile, this government agency is working out the aliens code through this musical code through uh, technology so it's kind of a religious belief versus science thing um and all the stuff about um richard Dreyfus's character and others being kind of compelled by this feeling they're searching for an answer they're leaving their unsatisfactory lives it does have the air of a religious awakening a kind of second company thing and meanwhile, the government is seeking rational scientific answers, and they even use a scientific excuse, uh, as in a phony toxic leak, to prevent people from coming near the kind of landing site of the aliens. So, um, and then once once Richard Dreyfus and that get there, they they remove their gas masks, and it's almost like an act of faith. So there's very much this sort of religion versus science thing going through the film, and and then you've got Francois Truffaut's character, um, who's sort of a bridge between the two sides. He's an official, he's a man of science, but he's also impressed by the civilians and horrified by the escalating military response to all of this. Um, so, yeah, it goes, it's um, it's an unusual film because rather than the, it kind of ratcheting up the stakes, uh, the peril in the movie actually dissipates as the film goes on. So in the third act, the peril is, it's not, it's gone, but it, it's replaced by something different. It's replaced by a sense of awe. So really, it's just building up to this kind of meeting with the aliens, um, which is quite an interesting structure anyway. And you can hear it in John Williams. Obviously, it's John Williams doing the music because it's Spielberg from the time. But And John Williams' score, it goes from the sort of Christoph Penderekian horror music to almost like this... Uh, much more hopeful Vaughan Williams type, uh, classical, quite uplifting. So you could reflected in that as well. And that sense of awe, it used to be quite a big deal in sci-fi, I suppose, beginning with stuff like 2001. You get an occasional film like Arrival or possibly Midnight Special nowadays, which just are focusing on that wow factor. But most of the time there's going to be a lot more peril, if you see what I mean. Um, mm. This is 1977. The special effects, they haven't really dated too much because they're by Douglas Trumbull, who was a genius behind 2001 Space Odyssey and Blade Runner. And he had a really good knack for using miniatures very tastefully. And he uses lighting very tactfully to kind of hide the seams. See what I mean? So mm. it's almost like the 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 spacecraft are almost shapeless because it's so shrouded in light. Uh, uh, so it's quite clever, and it, it made got me thinking about. I'm sure we've talked about this before about pre CG special and visual effects and and how you know you watch a, a movie like this and you, you're always asking like how did they do that? That question is how did they do that? And that and it's a question you you don't really ask about CG because the answer is all the same, really. So I do respect filmmakers, especially modern filmmakers, who have some kind of at least connection with older forms of special effects, sort of like 
Christopher Nolan with Interstellar using the miniatures. And then you've got Terence Malick with The Tree of Life, who, again, actually brought Douglas Trumbull back for that after 30 years out of the business and created some non-CG visual effects using, like, chemicals and smoke and paint. So that was cool. But anyway, so, yeah, it looks it looks it still looks really cool. Um, and it's one of those movies where it's you've got to put it in the context of America at the time, I think. This is post-Vietnam, post-Watergate, and trust in government must have been a pretty low ebb in America. And, of course, there was a terrible recession. So it's like, you know, hope and faith must have been in short supply. So... Uh, and then a film like this comes along and it says, well, actually, things might not be so bad, actually, if you have a bit of faith. Uh, it doesn't hurt the fact that it's got a cameo from Carl Weathers in it, obviously. Good. And even more briefly, a cameo from Lance Henriksen. Good. Um, I, yeah, I really like Close Encounters. I think uh, I do appreciate it is the least accessible, probably, of Steven Spielberg's forays into sci-fi because you've got like E.T. has a very relatable friendship story, and then you got War of the Worlds as a big scale action. You got Minority Report has its dystopian thrills. I suppose there's there's AI, but that's not actually that's more of a greatest hits package than something as weird as this but close encounters it's it's like it's specifically about leaving that relatable sufferer behind like leaving his family and things like that and surrendering to something uh more like some sort of human ascension i suppose in a way it's spielberg's version of 2001 a space odyssey and i think a lot of these filmmakers of um, well, maybe not of that generation, but of that ilk, have all, a lot of them have had their 2001 moment, like Robert Zemeckis had Contact, and then you got Nolan with Interstellar, Steven Soderbergh did Solaris. So really, I'm just waiting for David Fincher to pull his finger out and make his sci-fi epic. And Alien 3 doesn't count, so... <laughs> All right. <laughs> so, yes, Close Encounters is a slightly strange but very atmospheric and warm film. I, I, it's, it's a film that I, I still haven't seen, and I dare say I will watch at some point. Um, I was going to talk about a, another film. I've got, we've both got loads left, but um, I, I think you may watch this, so it might be better to talk about it together next time. Things Heard and Seen with Amanda Seyfried? Right. I assume I, be, I think it should be on your watch list. Okay. Just just a bit, I'm personally intrigued just to see what you think of it before we um, talk about it next time. So my last film then, if we've got time for one more, is possibly Albert Pian's only average film. Not even good. <laughs> and that is Cyborg from 1989, which is another film I've seen a lot of times over the years, but not <laughs> for a while. Um, the it's called Cyborg. The alternate title was Slinger, which makes much more sense and is a better title in the in the context of the film. So <clears throat> this is Albert Pian's first film, and I said it's not even his best. It, well, it is his best, but it's average at best. So this is like the pinnacle, the pinnacle at the start. And this is um, set after a plague has ruined civilization, and everyone is not wearing their best clothes, and 
um, Sylvester Stallone, um, Jean-Claude Van Damme is a slinger uh, who sort of is a mercenary effectively and he's got a gun he's made from a coat hanger and a bottle of ketchup and he's got a sword that's bent at a 90 degree angle and just bloody makes do. And there's a woman who is a cyborg, which I'll go into because I, I, this is the first time I've watched this and actually paid attention to the plot and it is astonishing. The plot is... It breezes over things just to get the action going. And then when you think about what actually happens, it is a bewildering. Um, so, yeah, he is hired by a woman who is a cyborg and has this information in her. She needs to travel across the United States to the East Coast to get to a, a, a facility where they can hopefully come up with a cure for this plague. It was made on leftover sets that from a failed Masters of the Universe sequel. And that is, I will say that the set design and the clothing is a bit of a high point because it doesn't it doesn't look you know sometimes you watch especially films from like the 2000s and late 90s where it's supposed to be in a ruined um apocalyptic landscape and it's just people just wearing like clothes that are really pressed and clean the everyone in this is buzzing everyone's hair's dirty and everyone's covered in soot and sand and everyone looks really grimy and buzzing good um the fight sequences are absolutely dreadful um, it's it's like John Clavanam. It's like he had a bigger film he was filming after this and didn't want to hurt himself. So none of the fighting has any impact. Obviously, he does the splits. He does the splits above a man who walks underneath him and doesn't see him, even though when it cuts out for the wide shot, all he'd have to do is tilt his head upwards less than five degrees, or even his eyes, and he would see him. Um, so, the, but uh, yeah, I wanted to talk about the plot. So this woman is a scientist in one facility, and she needs to get information to another one. And the sort of lead scientist says, well, the only way we're going to be able to transport this information is if we turn you into a cyborg. And she just says, well, fair enough. And and it shows mm-hmm. the operation. And they come, like, they, like, remove her brain and, and, like, most of his skeleton and her eyes. And you're like, surely, surely you could have just written it down. Like, what? Or, like, what? or put it on a disc or something. But no, it's you know, the only way is to turn into a cyborg. Um which is practical effects when she reveals her, she takes her hair off and reveals what is kind of underneath the skin. It's quite a cool scene. Mm-hmm. Um, the main antagonist in this film is played by Vincent Klin, who plays uh, a guy called Fender Tremolo. Everyone is named after some sort of piece of musical equipment like Nady Simmons, Fender Tremolo, Marshall Strat, Gibson Rickenbacker, whatever. Um, but there's a scene at the start where John Clovandang is beaten up by. Um, Fender Tremolo, Vincent Klin and his gang of misfits and take the cyborg and they want to take it to Atlanta and they get on a ship, a ship and sail off. And mm. then Jean-Claude Van Damme, by walking down seemingly like a rural forest path on foot, like just gets gets to this beach before them. And so, what? <laughs> they're, they're on a boat. Uh, anyway, <laughs> so that was baffling. Um, there's a couple of flashbacks to Jean-Claude Van Damme's life before uh, this this whole happened when you know it wasn't as bad, and his hair is astonishing. It's obviously sh- to show it's like before and after. He's got long hair, but he's got it really loosely tied back. It's really dirty, even though there's no need for it to be dirty because it's before the apocalypse. And he's got a huge like <laughs> like anime fringe pushed forward. It's terrible. Um, and he gets dropped down a well uh, covered in barbed wire and then Fender makes his daughter like hold this barbed wire and of course it's like slipping her hands and she lets go and kill her, kill her family. Quite harsh. Vincent Klin is cool in this. He's got awesome contact lenses on and he's covered in chainmail and he is a threatening presence with a sort of digitally altered voice. Fine. One thing I did notice about this film this time round is how 
often people stare at each other. People stare at each other a lot in this film, Rupert. <laughs> There's Vincent Clinn loves a good stare. And of course, every time he's staring at someone or something, all of his gang around him in a line staring at the same thing. Whenever mm. he meets up with Jean-Claude Van Damme before they fight, they have a good stare. At the end of the film, when he drops off the cyborg to this facility, he stares at her for a while. And then he goes down some stairs and then he looks back up to her at like side on and stares at her again. <laughs> just just go just leave um see it's it's an average film and it's kind of fun to watch because it's a really dirty uh like 80s low budget post-apocalyptic film and it's worth watching just because i genuinely believe it's albert pian's best film and it's not that good you mentioned uh i i don't know whether you meant it meant to say it but you said it is his first film because it's not his first film Oh, isn't know, it? Sorry. We know that his first film is A Sword and a Sorcerer. Well, oh, I know God. that only because I remember reading that it's the only film of his which has a, a positive rating on Rotten Tomatoes. Every oh, other film on. he's made. <laughs> Sorry, yeah. It's, no, it's not his first film, you're right. Um, also, oh, another thing about Albert Pian is vaguely he did Kickboxer 2, of course, um, which does does not have Jean-Claude Van Damme in it um and the quote on the poster for Kickboxer 2 was better than Kickboxer (laughs) but what was is hang on now is this like was Kickboxer 2 a sequel to a reboot or oh it was just it it was oh just to to the oh right okay literally the second in the Kickboxer film series yeah Um, because of course of course, there was um, a, a film. There was a there was Bloodsport, and there was like a new trilogy of other. What was it? Blood, right. Hang on, I I can find this out now because um, it's another film that I was going to talk about. I watched Bloodsport the other day as well, so I can cover that in a future it, episode. I just need to go back and just quickly check how many times Jean Claude Van Damme does this. Oh no. Oh. It's kick- Kickboxer. They did. They did Kickboxer, and then Kickboxer Vengeance and Kickboxer Retaliation, all with Alan Moosey, who who was in Jujitsu with Nicolas Cage, which is a film I really need to talk about at some point. Um, and it's a film with Jean Claude Van Damme, and he plays this sort of sort of sensei in it. And it's very clear in this film. If you ever, if anyone watches Kickboxer Retaliation, I watched it about four or five years ago. He is pissed. Like, in he is clearly drunk in the scenes he's in. He's like sort of. <laughs> wobbling on his feet and like sort of smiling as other people are talking and i and i thought is he supposed no he's just drunk on set much like michael madsen in blood rain where at one point supposed to be a crack archer he's leaning on a wall and gasping (laughs) not just drunk um so yeah uh, it'd be interesting to see there's one called radioactive dreams that albert Pian did in 87 that was um had um michael dudikoff in it which i've always been intrigued by so yeah, I, 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 he did a film called Brain Smasher, a love story in the early nineties, and this was meant to be his most personal kind of film. Uh, I don't know whether, and like it was meant to be kind of a wacky comedy, and I thought, well, oh that God. can't be so bad because it was written by him as well. So you know, see what this is. Like. It just, it just wasn't funny at all. I, I was gonna say, yeah, comedy doesn't seem to be his yeah. forte. I don't know what his forte is. I don't think he has one not directing films unfortunately yeah so maybe his forte is drawing pictures of will forte maybe that's really <laughs> the focus on 
Um, yeah, so I think we're up to date now. Well, we're not because still got no, not at all. Films we could talk about. Um, yeah. But yeah, we'll save them for next time. Um, but uh, so, film of the week time, I guess. For me, it's a pretty. I mean, it hasn't been a. I've got other ones I haven't spoken about. Like I watched Stowaway Run, King of New York, uh, Jiu Jitsu. But the film of the week for me are the ones I have mentioned today. Is Shade just because I forgot how much I enjoyed watching it. Those films when they finish, you just you say out loud, "I enjoyed that." <laughs> like, yeah, it's like yeah, I enjoyed that. It was nice. It was like a nice cup of tea. So uh, yeah, Shade for me. Okay, well. I mean, I enjoyed Love and Monsters a lot, although I suspect it's probably going to be pushed on people by Netflix's algorithms anyway, so probably no reason to recommend that. So rather than that, ooh, dig out a couple of prime ones here. Is it going to be Dark Blue or Terror Train? Uh, I mean, I think Dark Blue is, yeah. I mean, Terror Train is quite specifically for people who are into early 80s horror. So Dark, but Dark Blue probably has broader appeal, so... And it didn't do very well at the time, so I think I'll go with that dark blue. It's Prime. weird. It's weird that it didn't do well at the time because it, it struck me as a film with class uh, and yeah. uh, actually something to say. So I'm quite surprised it didn't do well. I always mix it up with what was Tupac Shakur's last film in '96. I think it's with James Belushi. Mm. Ga- ga- gang related. In my head, right. they've got very similar covers, and in my head, they mixed up. But should watch that as well, really. Yeah. Okay. So uh, good. Well, it's been a yeah, pleasure, as always. Absolutely, and um, yeah, I'll I'll try and catch up with um, other ones. But I w- the last thing I'll say before I go uh, is mm. that th- there's a scene in jujitsu where someone is running uh, uh, along a field and they fall into a rabbit hole into the arms of Nicolas Cage, who reveals that they're father and son. Bloody hell! That's quite Chad's. That is that is a coincidence. <laughs> Yeah, it's never happened to me, but you know. Yeah, how, how many times have you? How many times have you gone over, rolled on your ankle, and as you've sort of gone ah and fallen on the floor, someone has jumped out of a car and shouted, "I'm your dad." <laughs> it doesn't happen often. Doesn't happen no. often. Cool. Oh, it's well, the magic a... of cinema, right? Okay. <laughs> have a beautiful evening, and I'll speak to you and soon. You. Take care. Bye-bye. Bye bye. Bye.